We are in the midst of a sermon series uh, around the gift of friendship, the one thing you can't live without. Actually, there have been scientific studies done to prove this, that if you are not in relationship with anybody, you can't really even live. And so we are thinking about that, especially as we're imagining signing up people into small groups, giving them the opportunity to deepen their sphere of friendship and even widen their sphere of friendship. Uh, And in doing so, we're paying attention to some texts in the New Testament that remind us of how much Jesus invites us into this life of faith wherein we come together in relationship with each other. So we begin today by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at the first verse. The Apostle Paul writes and says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were enticed and led astray to idols that could not speak. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, Let Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. And to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the discernment of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same Spirit who allots to each one individually just as the Spirit chooses. Our second lesson is from the Acts of the Apostles, the second chapter, beginning at the 37th verse. And this is toward the end of the great story of Pentecost, after Peter has preached his great sermon in response to the Holy Spirit's work in him and in his brothers and sisters. Beginning at verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people And day by day, the Lord added to their number 
those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, for we pray this in his name. Amen. So the story is told of three men who met on the first tee to play a round of golf. And just as they were lamenting the fact that they didn't have a fourth to make it a foursome and to make up two teams, they turned and noticed behind them, walking out from the pro shop, a gorilla. The gorilla had over his shoulder a bag of clubs, and when he arrived at the tee, grunted in such a way as to suggest that maybe he could play with the three men so as to make two teams. Men kind of looked at each other for a moment and said, why not? The more gracious of the three accepted the gorilla as his partner, and they commenced to tee off. It was a lengthy par five, and the three men drove their balls their customary 200 yards, and the gorilla pulled out his driver and hit the ball 275 yards right down the middle of the fairway. Men were very impressed. The four of them got to their balls and hit their second shots. The men another 200 yards, but the gorilla with his forewood hit it again another 275 yards with his ball now rolling up onto the green, leaving a five-foot putt for eagle. So as the men were walking up to the green, the gorilla's partner, now a little less gracious, suggested that maybe they should put some stakes on the game. His opponents begrudgingly accepted. The stakes were determined. And with that, the gorilla pulled out his putter, stepped up to the ball, and hit it another 275 yards. <laughs> Sometimes you know just enough to be dangerous. Sometimes you know enough to know how much you don't know. All the time, you never know enough. Just about every day, I take my seat inside a two-plus-ton piece of machinery called a car, more specifically an SUV. I count on it to get me to work and to go anywhere else I hope to go. I know how to open it. I know how to start it. I know how to put it into gear. I know how to steer it. I know how to stop it. And that works for me about 95% of the time until something on the dashboard starts to blink or ding warning me that if I don't act fairly soon, this two-plus-ton piece of machinery is not going to get me where I'm going. It will stop in a very inconvenient place, likely at a very inconvenient time. Despite all of what I know about this car, I know enough to know what I don't know. I know enough to know that I'm dangerous. And that's when I call up my friend Webb. Stand up, Webb. Webb's the man. Webb is the guy I call at the service department, and I tell Webb that I've got a blink and a ding, and I need help. And Webb never fails me. Webb helps me. Without Webb, I would not be getting to work. Without Webb, I would be incomplete. Let's give a big round of applause to Webb. Now, it makes me think of a time a year of several years ago, long before cell phones, when I was driving down the road and I noticed a woman whose car had evidently broken down and she was trying to start it but to no avail. 
I must have read the Good Samaritan story recently enough to prompt me to stop and offer help. So I got out of the car and went up to the woman who was still sitting in her driver's seat, still trying to start the car, and I asked her what the problem was, and she said, I can't get my car to start. (laughs) Well, we were on the same page with that one. So I said to her, let me look under the hood. (laughs) That was going to help. So I lifted the hood and looked at the engine with one of those I-know-what-I'm-looking-at kind of looks, all while saying to myself, I don't know what I'm looking at. What the heck am I doing? And just as I was thinking that and thinking, what am I going to do now, a member of the church that I was then pastoring rode by on his bike. And he saw me looking at this poor woman's engine, and he said to himself, oh boy, that woman is in danger. So praise the good Lord, he stopped and he put his head underneath the hood and he put his hands into the engine somewhere and before we knew it, she was on her way with absolutely no help from me. Sometimes we know enough to be dangerous. Sometimes we know enough to know how much we don't know. All the time, we never know enough. Now, none of this is rocket science, of course. It takes an incredibly arrogant person to think that he or she knows all of what they need to know. Even the greatest know-all, I'm sure, realizes that they don't know enough to be a brain surgeon, unless, of course, you stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. The truth is, we all know enough to be dangerous, and we never know enough to be complete. And yet at the same time, we live in a culture that prides itself in self-sufficiency. Do it yourself. The less you depend on others, the better. Go to school, make good grades, get a good job, make enough money. Then you really don't have to depend on anybody. If there's anything that human beings pride ourselves on, it's what we know. Especially if we think we know more than the other guy. So perhaps it was with this human prejudice in mind that the Apostle Paul spoke rather directly to the early church at Corinth to tell the Corinthians that the church of Jesus has come to start as the body of people who need to remind themselves individually that they are in need of each other. That is tempting as it might be to think of themselves individually as having perhaps even better gifts or greater gifts than other people and in turn think of themselves as higher up in the ranks of indispensability. The Apostle Paul writes and says, no, 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 no. There are a variety of gifts but the same Spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who activates them all. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, God has woven you together, Paul says. God has woven you together for a purpose. You need each other. The sum is greater than the parts. A five-foot putt is just as important as a 275-yard drive. Each counts one stroke. At no time was this more greatly felt than in the first century when all that merry band of 
early followers of Jesus, all they had was each other. They were poor. They were alien to the culture. They were resistant to Rome. And the only way they were going to survive was to exist as a body, to exist as this woven tapestry of gifts, to exist to show the world that the way of Christ was interdependence. Maybe they remembered the story about the time when Jesus was inside a house teaching and, and they brought to him a man who was lame. Underline the word they. They brought to him a man who was lame. He did not come on his own. He did not crawl his way to the house. He had people in his life who cared enough about him, who had a gift that he didn't have, able legs with which to walk, and they brought their friend, but because the crowd was so big, security so tight, they could not get their friend close to Jesus. But one of these four able-bodied men had an idea, how, how about we hoist this man up to the roof? How about we dig a hole in the roof? I'm not sure how the homeowner felt about all this. How about we dig a hole in the roof and lower our friend right in front of Jesus? Now, that's, that's four caring and creative people. And Scripture says this, when Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, He proceeded to heal their friend. When Jesus saw their faith, He proceeded to heal their friend. It really is an extra measure of faith to grow past the idea that following Jesus is a singular act. You know, in other words, you know, you and me, Jesus. I read my Bible. I do the right things. I give my money. I pray every night. And while all those things are a good thing, they really just are a prerequisite for the real course. And the real course is the faith that we share together in our life together. I only know enough, we remind ourselves. I only know enough to make me dangerous. I only know enough to keep me alone. I only know enough to be incomplete. It makes me think of that college women's softball game ten years ago when Central Washington was playing Western Oregon when Western Oregon's Sarah Tukulski hit her very first collegiate home run. And so excited was she about hitting her first home run, she forgot to touch first base when she was taking her home run trot. And so she stopped, she turned, but in turning around to go back to the base, her knee didn't go with her, and she tore her ACL. Her knee gave out and sent her to the ground. The best she could do was crawl back to first base. Problem. It's not a home run if you don't run the bases. And no one on your team can help. Problem. Because home runs are a singular act. So what to do? Well, that's when first baseman Mallory Holtman from the other team, Central Washington, figured out that there was nothing in the rule book that prevented the opposing team from helping. So Mallory and her teammate Liz Wallace picked up their opponent, walked her to second, touched her foot on the bag, walked her to third, touched her foot on the bag, and walked her home. 
and touched her foot on home plate. Home run. Isn't it funny? We want so much for the home run to, to go it alone. One swing of the bat. When life really isn't that way. We need each other more than we'll ever know. Reminds me of Garrison Keillor's little story that I've shared before, the man who was standing out in his front yard contemplating an act of great selfishness. And just as about as he is ready to give in to his temptation, he looks out at his neighborhood and later reports to his friend, You know, I looked up the street of my little town from which which was health to my flesh and blood, where people went to church and voted in elections and bought what the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts sold, rooted for the home team, raised money for the library, and tended the parks. And I thought how much we depend on each other. All these houses and all these families, my laps will somehow shake them, pollute the drinking water, and send noxious fumes up the ventilators at the elementary school. When we scream, he continues, when we scream in senseless anger, a little eight-year-old girl several blocks away we don't even know spills gravy over a white tablecloth. And if I proceed with my indiscretion, somehow the school patrol will forget to guard the intersection and someone's child will be injured. A sixth-grade teacher will say, what the heck, and eliminate South America from geography. The minister will say, what the heck, and decide not to give that sermon about feeding the poor. The guy at the grocery store will say, ah, to heck with the health department. The sausage was good yesterday, it's just as good today. And I decided that we all depend on each other more than we could ever know. It makes me think of the time when I faced, undoubtedly, the hardest pastoral crisis I ever faced. I don't have the time to go into the details, but suffice it to say, I was in over my head and I didn't know what to do. And I was young and I didn't have the experience or the maturity to handle what had been thrown at me. And I remember sitting at my desk in my office and not knowing really what I was going to do. And just then the phone rang. And it was my secretary telling me of a guy named Jim who was in the lobby to see me. Jim who, I asked. I don't know, she said. He says he's here and needs to see you and he'll only be a second. So I went out to the lobby and there was Jim. Jim was a pastor three towns over who had heard about this crisis that had landed in my lap. By then it was national news. And he said to himself that maybe Steve might want to know that he was being prayed for. So he drove three towns over just to say that he was thinking about me. And did I have just two minutes for him to pray for me? I did, and he prayed. And the burden the size of the world felt lifted from my shoulders just a little bit. A couple of hours later, a woman from the congregation stopped by and said she wasn't sure what she could do. But she could run errands. Did I have any errands she could run? And that's when I remember the dry cleaning slip in my pocket for the suit that I would need to wear the next day. Off she went. And then the following morning, another member of the church stopped by, the former local high school football coach. And he said, you know, 
When life gets too big for me, I find the best thing that I can do is to take a walk. I need you to take a walk with me. I said, uh, well, I don't have time to take a walk with you. And he said, I need you to take a walk with me. High school football coaches don't take no for an answer. So we walked for 45 minutes, and I started to breathe again. We depend on each other more than we can ever know. Rocket science? Of course not. We all know enough to be dangerous. We all know enough to be incomplete. So we look to each other. We find our community. We join a small group. We discover the gifts in each other that we don't have ourselves. We let someone else look under the hood, putt the putt, lift the world from our shoulders, walk us around the bases, and lower us through the roof. For there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, a variety of services, but the same Lord, a variety of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone.